You're listening to Stream of Conscience, Beckett's Religious Liberty Podcast. I'm Katie Geary. And I'm Angela Wu Howard. In today's episode, we're talking about the Establishment Clause of the U.S. Constitution. We'll go back to the Establishment Clause's origins to understand why it's part of the First Amendment, how it was intended to protect our rights, and how popular understanding of the Establishment Clause has morphed it into something very different from its real purpose. Have you heard of the Lemon Test? What about the Peace Cross? Did you know that the phrase separation of church and state was made popular by nativist organizations, including the Ku Klux Klan? If you answered no, then this episode is a must listen for you. The Establishment Clause. Where do we even start? As with anything in the Constitution, it always makes the most sense to go straight to the text first. The Establishment Clause is our first enumerated right. It opens the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And we wish it was as simple as that. But of course, the text brings up all sorts of questions, like what qualifies as an establishment of religion? To answer that question, we have to go back in time to figure out what the people who actually wrote the First Amendment, our founders, would have meant. You have to remember that they were pulling away from England and they were looking at the abuses that had occurred under the established church. That's Lori Wyndham, senior counsel at Beckett. The established church she mentioned would be the Anglican Church, the Church of England. And so they were looking at a situation where you could actually enforce church attendance and people could be punished if they weren't showing up to church on Sundays and where the leadership in the church actually had power in government and could have a say uh, in exactly what the government was going to do. And your rights to to vote, to participate politically could be conditioned on whether you were a member in good standing of the local established church. And so there was a desire to break away from a lot of this history among the colonists and among in, in the new country. And what's interesting, though, is that that wasn't universal. Some states, uh, like Virginia, where I live, had an established Anglican church. And so you get these representatives from all these different new states together in a room. And what are you going to do about establishment? Because some of them feel really strongly that this is a problem. We can't have establishment. Um, Others said, hey, my state has an established church. We don't want you coming in and getting rid of it. What are we going to do? Lori called the Establishment Clause a kind of truce between these opinions. It was a way to try and make peace among these new states who had very different ideas about how church and state ought to work. And so what the Establishment Clause did from the very beginning was basically say, hey, leave us out of it. We're the federal government. We're going to sit here. I'm not going to say in Washington. It wasn't Washington yet. Um, But we're going to sit here and we are not going to interfere with you states and how you want to run things. But it wasn't just a question of whether or not to have the clause in there. There was another debate, and that was, how do we write this clause? The Establishment Clause has written notice um, was very carefully written not to separate church and state or anything like that. In fact, it's clear from the text. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. That's Philip Hamburger, a law professor at Columbia Law School. Professor Hamburger is an expert on constitutional law, including religious liberty and administrative law. 
This is a rejection of one of the proposals from New Hampshire, and it also had been common amongst some Baptists in the South, that there should be no law regarding touching, respecting religion. As Laurie mentioned, in the colonial period, New Hampshire and some other states actually did have established religions. So the proposals that came from these places were that the clause should lead to a completely hands-off approach from Congress, that Congress shouldn't make a law that even touched on religion or infringing on rights of conscience. And that radical position, although appealing on theological grounds, went a little too far. So, for example, Presbyterians were interested in having a marriage law that enabled Presbyterian ministers to effectuate marriages. Um, Quakers were very interested in having laws exempting them from all sorts of requirements, not least uh, swearing oaths and participating in military affairs. Uh, So they actually need, to protect their religious liberty, they need laws regarding religion. And we can go further, but those are just the clearest examples. So it was very important that it not be too radical. And so they backed off a little bit and said, well, it won't have no laws respecting religion, but none respecting an establishment of religion. This struck me. So often you do hear that the establishment clause is about separating the government from religion. But as Professor Hamburger pointed out, government actually needs to have a relationship with religious entities. So the establishment clause wasn't, it isn't, about removing religion from our civic life. No, it was really about setting up a framework for how religion is a part of civic life. It was also, in a significant way, about letting states retain some power separate from the federal government. But that fell away after a critical case applied the Establishment Clause to the states, not just the federal government. So in 1947, in a case called Everson versus Board of Education, uh, the Supreme Court, for the first time, ruled that the Establishment Clause could actually apply against the states. And when I say the states, I mean all levels of government, even down to the level of the local school board. And uh, this really changed how the courts viewed it. And so over the next few years, you had a lot of uh, disputes and debates. Of course, you know, people now look at 1962 and Engel versus Vitale, where you had um, the decision that you could no longer have mandatory prayer in public schools. There were decisions on Bible reading, on release time classes for religion, on religious instruction. And so it was a time of immense um, social change in the United States. It was also a time when you had the Supreme Court issuing a lot of decisions um, and really, I would say, kind of micromanaging these low-level establishment issues all the way down to the level of the local school board. Now, Professor Hamburger had a really interesting take on all this. In his opinion, that landmark case, Everson v. Board of Education, was kind of the culmination of a cultural trend driven in large part by nativist organizations. And here it gets very weird indeed. You know what nativists are, native-born Americans who are very proud of this and form fraternal organizations in which they uh, take aim at various minority religions, primarily Catholics, and of course, especially if they're born abroad, such as Irish Catholics or Italian-born Catholics and so forth. And the nativists celebrated American principles and American freedom, which was the cultural expression of nationalism that, of course, eradicates the difference, flattens out the difference between federal and states, including federal and state liberty, so that by the 1920s, you get, for example, the KKK publishing American bills of rights, which purport to be the bill of rights that apply to all of us, rather than focusing on the federal bill of rights or the state bill of rights. And interestingly, in doing this, 
they introduced separation of church and state as a substitute for the words of the Establishment Clause. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, the KKK creed included a statement in which Klansmen pledged allegiance to the eternal separation of church and state. The idea of separation of church and state is what gave them fuel for the discriminatory state bills they proposed, like ones in Oregon and Washington state, where they pushed for states to shut down all Catholic schools. The nativists weren't the first to come up with the idea of separation of church and state. Thomas Jefferson wrote in a letter that the Establishment Clause promoted a wall of separation of church and state. For Jefferson, this wall meant protecting individuals from being coerced into specific religious observance. But according to Professor Hamburger, it was the nativists who popularized it. Jefferson and his friends couldn't popularize this idea. It was disreputable when he said it. But nativists, in their antagonism against Irish Catholics, did popularize it. It became an American principle. And then this newfound principle made its way to the Supreme Court by way of Hugo Black, a U.S. senator and Ku Klux Klan member, who was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1937. And when Hugo Black, of course, gets to the court, he's not unfamiliar with this, he being the Ku Klux Klan's candidate uh, for, the, for the Senate. He believed in these American principles, including separation of church and state, and he did it with um, self-conscious distaste for the Catholic Church. So Hugo Black brings this into, in the Everson case, brings this into Supreme Court jurisprudence and establishes separation of church and state as sort of the, the, the primary way of interpreting the Establishment Clause. So that's how we got from the original meaning of the Establishment Clause to this popular idea of it meaning separation of church and state, a phrase which, it bears repeating, is not actually found in the Establishment Clause at all. This is where, as they say, it went sour. If the separation of church and state as a principle seems very rotund and comes off the lip very easily, that doesn't mean that it is either law or that it is uh, very helpful in sorting out cases. What does this mean, separation of church and state? It, 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 uh, there are cases when you say, yeah, they can't be. You know, does the state not send the fire department to the church when it's on fire? Um, and the court in 1971 in the Lemon Test devices what they hope will be a manageable, concrete expression of separation of church and state. That's what the Lemon Test is all about. Ah, uh, the notorious Lemon Test. Well, notorious for lawyers, anyway. Explain for our non-lawyers, what's the Lemon Test? Sure. The Lemon Test was a judicial standard that came out of the 1971 Supreme Court case Professor Hamburger mentioned, Lemon v. Kurtzman. Sometimes court rulings include tests, practical guides that future courts can rely on to decide similar cases that come down the line. The decision said when there's an Establishment Clause case, you should use a three-part test. One, the law's purpose must be secular. Two, the law may neither advance nor inhibit religion. And three, the law may not create excessive entanglement with religion. At first, the lemon test doesn't sound so bad. But as the test made its way through the lower courts, it opened a whole new can of worms. And that spawned a lot of cases then trying to wrestle with 
Well, how do you know if the legislature had a secular purpose in what they were doing? And how do you know the effects of the law? How do you define entanglement? How much is too much? What kinds of activities can you have in public schools? What about prayer? What about scripture? What if it's, you know, it's not led by the teachers? What if it's by a student? What if it's at a football game and not in the school? Uh, what if it's at a graduation ceremony? What's permissible there? And so you have a lot of things with regard to schools. You have a lot of questions about funding. So, you know, can you provide certain kinds of funds to students at private schools? What about vouchers or tax credits to parents? Uh, what sort of funding is entanglement with religion? And what sort of funding is just helping kids get to school? And then you have all of these public symbols cases where you have crosses, you have war memorials, you have Ten Commandments statues, you have other sorts of public statues, you have um, items that are in museums, you have seals in the county courthouses, you have all kinds of public symbols that we encounter every day. And are those legal? So the lemon test, for all its noble intentions, created more problems than it solved. It's just kind of a, a judge-made test that seemed like a good idea in the 70s. And there are a lot of things that were bad ideas in the 70s. And this is one of them. I was born in the 70s, so I get to say that. In fact, the courts don't even often use the lemon test. Right, because it turns out there are more and better ways to evaluate whether something has violated the Establishment Clause. So the courts have essentially been able to use lemon when it will create the result they want and ignore it when it won't. But because of its mere existence, we constantly have to take the lemon test into consideration. You know, I tell you, as a lawyer litigating these cases, it's really frustrating because you get an Establishment Clause case and you have to say, OK, here's the lemon test. The lemon test doesn't apply, but here's why we went under the lemon test. And here's the endorsement test. And the endorsement test doesn't apply, but here's why we went under the endorsement test. And here's the historical test. And that should apply. And here's why we went under this test. It's like nobody knows what test the court is actually going to use to decide this case. So you just have to argue all of them and hope you get it right. So you could say there are two major problems with the lemon test. The first one is the actual test. It creates this wall between church and state that wasn't part of the intention of the Establishment Clause at all. But the second problem with the lemon test is that it's totally unreliable in that we don't even know if the courts will end up using it. And all this leads up to the pressing question, why, oh why, is the lemon test still a thing? Why won't it just die? Justice Scalia basically said just that. He said the lemon test is like some ghoul in a late night horror movie that repeatedly sits up in its grave and shuffles abroad after being repeatedly killed and buried. And that's a quote. Well, the Supreme Court has had some chances to put the lemon test to rest. One of the recent ones was a case involving a memorial in Bladensburg, Maryland. The memorial was erected shortly after World War I to commemorate American servicemen who had died overseas during the war. The case was called the American Legion v. American Humanist Association. The memorial at the heart of the case is called the Peace Cross, and it has a poignant history. After World War I ended, the people of Prince George's County wanted to commemorate their loved ones who had died in the war. The American Legion got involved and was able to get the rest of the donations and um, finish the project out. And they built this memorial that was in the shape of a cross. And it was on a prominent spot there in Bladensburg. It has the name of the 49 soldiers who served and died in World War I. And so they, they built this cross. It was put up in uh, early 1919 and has stood for 100 years. 
The monument itself is a 40-foot concrete cross. At its base is a quote from Woodrow Wilson, along with a tablet with the names of the men who were memorialized. Originally, the cross stood on private land, but the land was eventually turned over to the county. Now, the spot the cross stands on is surrounded by a traffic circle, and it's maintained with county funds. And that's why the Peace Cross ended up at the Supreme Court. So uh, an atheist group sued over the Bladensburg Cross, asking that it be taken down. The uh, local county government fought that lawsuit. The American Legion, who had been involved in uh, putting up the cross, intervened in the case to be able to defend it and keep it up. The county government and the American Legion won the case at the district court level, but the atheist group appealed the ruling. And then it went up to the Fourth Circuit, and the Fourth Circuit applied the Lemon Test and decided that the effect of the cross was to endorse religion, that a reasonable observer would see this big cross and think that the county was endorsing religion, and that because the county had spent some money on maintaining the cross, maintaining the area around the cross, that that was entanglement between the government and religion. And so they ruled the cross had to come down. Now, why would this atheist group, the American Humanist Association, want a World War I memorial taken down? The long and short of it was just that it was a cross, a religious symbol. If the meaning had been identical, but the look different, would they have pursued this? Probably not. In fact, one of the plaintiffs in the case actually suggested just chopping off the arms of the cross as a solution. But this brings up an interesting point about Establishment Clause cases, and that's the issue of standing. You have to have standing in order to go and file a lawsuit. That's standard with any claim. In most cases, if you want to go into federal court and challenge a law or challenge a government action, you've got to prove that you've actually been harmed by it. You can't just say, hey, my local government did this and they're wrong, so get rid of it, judge. You have to show that it actually impacts you in some way. And in the Establishment Clause, unlike just about anything else that I can think of, you can actually show that you've been harmed just by having to look at a religious monument, or not even having to look at it, just by the fact that you've encountered it and you've seen it at some point. You can go into federal court and say, hey, I saw this, it offended me, it has to go. In this particular case, the American Humanist Association and some individual county residents had standing simply because they were offended by the cross's presence. We've seen a number of cases like this. If you listened to our last season, you might remember the case of Big Mountain Jesus, a statue on some Montana ski slopes. That was another case of a few people suing for the removal of a memorial just because they were offended by the sight of it. But back to the Peace Cross and the courts. The Supreme Court took up the case, um, which wasn't a big surprise. I mean, trying to tear down a giant World War I memorial on public land um, is a, is a tough thing to do. And so um, it had been about 10 years since the Supreme Court had taken on one of these cases. And so the time was ripe and they took this one up. Beckett filed what's called an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, in cases that aren't our own. Because what Beckett wants is for the lemon test to go away, we submitted a friend of the court brief that laid out the history of the Establishment Clause and what the court should be using as a test. So we made an argument that we have made several times before, which is that you need to look back at the history of the Establishment Clause and what an establishment of religion meant at the time of the founding. 
the factors showing religious establishment at the time of the founding were um, government control over doctrine or personnel of the church, mandatory attendance at an established church, government financial support of the established church, uh, restrictions on worship in dissenting churches, uh, restrictions on political participation by people who are part of dissenting churches and not part of the established church, um, and also whether the established church carries out uh, government or civil functions. Those were basically the factors that you saw in, uh, in Europe and in the states that had established churches at the time of the founding. And so if you look at what did it mean that we're not going to establish a religion, I believe the sensible thing is to say, well, what was an established religion? What did that mean at that time? These are the things it meant. These are the things that you're not supposed to do. So what we had argued the Supreme Court should do is just get rid of the lemon test altogether and replace that with a historical test that looks at what did establishment mean at the time of the founding and is that what the government is actually doing here? When you take that context into consideration, the Peace Cross was absolutely not a violation of the Establishment Clause. And did the Supreme Court rule the way we hoped they would? Yes and no. The court ruled 7-2 that the Peace Cross did not violate the Establishment Clause. The Supreme Court looked at the history of the Bladensburg Cross and how it had come about um, and the fact that it was there to memorialize those who died in the war. And it also looked at the history of how we have used these sorts of memorials and how the cross has been used within the military and how it's been used in, um, in cemeteries and in war memorials for a very long time. But the decision itself did not entirely do away with the lemon test. Four justices, Justice Alito, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Breyer, and Justice Kavanaugh, all joined onto a part of the opinion saying lemon's overruled, it's gone. Justice Thomas issued a separate opinion saying the Establishment Clause should be unincorporated, which would mean necessarily that lemon was gone. And Justice Gorsuch said, well, the plaintiffs didn't have standing, so we don't have to decide this anyway. So they came really, really close to it, but we don't have the one clear sentence saying, yes, lemon is gone, never use it again. Professor Hamburger thought the ruling skirted the real issue. The opinion says, oh, you know, it's not really that religious. It's just a cross that has changed its meaning over time. It may have possibly been religion up front, religious up front, but people can now look at it for other purposes. Well, I don't know. It looks like a cross to me. It looks pretty Christian to me. Why not admit it's a cross? And the reason they don't want to do that is then they'd run too much into the lemon test. So they're actually not being fully candid about the religious character of this thing in order to avoid the illogical results of the lemon test. This case and how it highlighted the flaws in the lemon test also speaks to a larger constitutional issue that Professor Hamburger talked about. Here, I think the central failure is to substitute separation of church and state and derivative things such as the lemon test for the words of the Constitution. The language one uses matters, uh, and this is true of obviously in many areas. And it's important to begin with the Constitution's language because it identifies the problem. It's an establishment, not a separation of church and state. It may not have totally eliminated it, but still, the Supreme Court ruling in the Peace Cross case, or American Legion, dealt a serious blow to the lemon test. 
The court's decision made a powerful case for how to evaluate future Establishment Clause cases based on the original intent of the clause and the history surrounding it. Number one, I think it really should end a lot of the debate over these older religious symbols. It's pretty clear, 7-2 from the Supreme Court, we're not going to go around tearing these things down. Uh, And number two, when it comes to lemon, I think it should be clear to lower courts by now, if it wasn't already, that you don't have to rely on the lemon test. The Supreme Court really has doubled down on this idea that we're going to look at the history, that we're going to look at what this religious symbol uh, or this action really means, and uh, that that is what is going to guide the courts going forward. Religious symbolism is not negative. It doesn't harm the community. We don't have to go around scrubbing it away. And I think the court has recognized that. Thank you to Philip Hamburger and Lori Windham for granting us interviews for this episode. Music in this episode, courtesy of APM Music and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music was composed by Eric McNerney. Beckett is a nonprofit public interest law firm dedicated to defending religious freedom for all. For more information on this case, our work, and stream of conscience, visit our website at beckettlaw.org or follow us on social media. <laughs> <laughs>